This is an ABC podcast. You know, I've been toying for a number of weeks with whether or not I should tell you about all the things that Scott says off air. Because, <laughs> honestly, talk about cancel culture. That guy would be completely finished if I was just honest with you about this. In fact, I feel vaguely dirty just coming on air knowing that's all in the background. It's that bad. But because of the code of honour that exists between colleagues and between co-hosts of whatever this is, I've chosen not to tell you that or even give you the slightest inkling that he's such a terrible person because I'm not a dobber. I don't do that. That's the way that you're meant to behave. Welcome to the minefield, by the way. Sorry about that preamble. Um, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my virtuous co-host. Um, Scott? That's fabulous. I love it. Are you, I love um, it. Is it. I a, love it. I, I'm sorry. I, I lost control for a moment there. No, it was wonderful. Keep going, please. Really? Do you want me to give them the details? Well, no, I'd prefer you didn't, yeah, well, but still. Okay. Do you know, actually, the great irony is, as I was saying that, I was thinking, oh, come on, come up with an example. I couldn't come up with a single example. <laughs> clean Living, that's my middle name. Scott's Clean, clean Living Stevens. Yeah, I think you that's might actually be. I can't even me. think of a, a rule of any note that I've ever observed you breaking. It Maybe is, on um, social media. Maybe I need to go through your social media history. Yeah, that's another story. Everyone breaks rules on social media, don't they? Yep. That's why it's best avoided. Um, I I love how you set it up mm. because we are. I discussing... like that you spotted that I was setting up something rather than just spouting. Yes. Oh, I know. Look, it, it's it, it it's wonderful. And in fact, it did take me. So this is my what are we? Two thousand twenty-one. This is my thirtieth year. I'm now thirty point five years in the country. Wow! Really? Yeah. Truly. Truly. Uh, I arrived on these fateful shores uh, middle of January 1991. And uh, the rest, I don't know what you're even going to describe it as. But anyway, I've, I've been here ever since. I remember um, the middle of January 1991 really vividly <laughs> as it happens. Really? Yeah, I really do because I was in the middle of a cricket tournament in Brisbane. <laughs> and that's probably where you landed, right? And this is exactly where I landed. So we right. were in the same city as you landed and we didn't know it. and all these years later, well, I mean, this isn't really much of note, is it? But, you know, no. our paths crossed. How about that? Anyway, sorry, I've interrupted you. You've been here 30 and a half years. Yeah, it just, it just struck me. I mean, even at the time, there were so many aspects of the vernacular that I just didn't get. Um, I mean, right. that those first couple of years are still a blur, not just because of the relentless mockery and other forms of verbal abuse and good-natured ribbing to which I was subjected. I mean, I was called a septic, for instance, for the first two years of being here. And I couldn't work out for the life of me what on earth that meant until I understood that, you know, the septic tank rhymes with yank. Anyway, it was just, <laughs> they're just all sorts of things is it, is about... It, actually, I need to ask you about this. Is this, is it rhyming slang itself you didn't get? Or yeah, is it that particular that. example? Well, both. Right. Okay. Um, but rhyming slang, it, it, I just didn't, it was, it was completely lost on me. Yeah, right. But also, you know, just something like the term dobber and dobbing, it didn't make, I had no idea what was being referred to. And even more than that, though, once I did understand, and, you know, th that, that translates across. All sorts of other cultures have a kind of 
social prohibition on snitching or ratting or grassing. I'll, I'll confess, Walid, I've, I've been watching and, uh, I mean, loving far more than I probably should uh, a recent uh, short-run series from the BBC called Time, if, if you haven't seen it. No, I haven't. You should. It is the most extraordinary prison drama I've ever seen. And the forms of punishment and brutality that are enacted against anybody who, for against whom there is the remotest suspicion that they're a grass, right. that they're they're turning in other prisoners, they're they're reporting wrongdoing, even when it's egregious wrongdoing. Uh, I mean, it's 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 horrific. So this is amongst uh, prisoners. Amongst prisoners, but but there's also forms of either ostracism or bullying, uh, um, verbal abuse at schools, at workplaces, between siblings. I mean, there are very few forms of broken trust or ways of breaking trust that are more severe, that are more frowned upon, not vertically. In other words, from, from rule above, makers. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, but horizontally. No, vertically, they love it. Vertically, well, they love it. Mostly. But do you know what I think it comes down to? Is mm, it comes I'm down just... to the relationship that you believe one ought to have with the relevant institution of authority. That's interesting. Right? So yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me that prisoners would say you don't snitch, you don't dob, because what, why would you be on the side of the system that put them in prison? Like you can't – you don't have recourse to that system and you never place any kind of fidelity to that system above – the fidelity that you all have horizontally as victims of that system mm. or some version. I'm sure you could express that better, but I think you know what I mean, right? With siblings and parents, it's like, no, you're, we're not on the side of the parents. We're meant to be on each other's side mm. as subordinates to the parents. So we don't, you know, we, we don't trust the institution of the parents enough to say that you should wrap me out to that institution, yeah. Right. You could potentially wrap them out to another sibling, and that wouldn't be as bad, right? Because you, you're—it's not a—it's still horizontal. It's yeah, still among or peers. at least it's yeah. not an institution that we should hold in, in contempt in some way. Yeah, I, I know where we're going here, and that is like in the context of the pandemic, what happens? Because what's interesting there is the trust and the role of the institution at the top that's issuing the public health orders, and one's belief in the importance of those public health orders. The calculation changes, doesn't it? Because there's probably a higher level of belief that these orders, at least among some, that these orders are to be respected. And so I think it changes the calculations of fidelity that, that go on there, which then changes the, the ethics, the, the sort of social mores of dobbing to some extent. Oh, that's so interesting. Look, can we, can we hold off getting to the public health implications for okay, a moment? Sure. I mean... I love that. And you're right. That's where we're going. It just seems to me, though, that we need to do a little bit more homework. We need to do a little bit more groundwork. Sure. Before we was get that there. characterization not. Do you disagree no. with it? I think, it's, I, I, I think it's right, broadly speaking, but I think at a couple points it verges on being a little bit too superficial. So, okay. so for instance, let, let's just take, for instance, either the relationship between siblings or in a prison, which are remarkably similar to one another. <laughs> <laughs> in many respects. <laughs> Given you're a parent, I find it amazing how you've characterized Yeah, yourself. yeah. No, no, I, I watch my boys. Um, uh, so so you, you could say, for instance, that various forms of ratting out another prisoner. Okay, 
the great fear is that's being done in order to curry for yourself a reduced sentence, to gain favor, to get preferential treatment from the guards or from whomever else. But even in instances, for instance, of brutality between prisoners, when there really is – there are forms of horizontal violence that are being enacted upon one another, the prohibition of seeking help above, even then – the absoluteness, the categorical nature of that prohibition still stands because it's almost as if there is a kind of solidarity in vice. I think, you, I think you're right that it's purely horizontal. The prohibition against dobbing does reflect or against snitching or ratting or grassing. This does reflect a kind of regard for one's horizontal relationships at the expense of all others and, and a form of, of horizontal solidarity uh, in the face of, at the expense of, in defiance of the rule makers and rule enforcers. I think that's, I think that's roughly right. It's not, I guess it's one not of comprehensively the... right, though, because you can still no, have horizontal sh- snitching that's um, punishable. So I'm thinking, for example, someone gives crucial information from one drug cartel to another. If that's discovered, then they will be killed. Yes. So that's not horizontal. That sorry, that no, is a, that's a horizontal rivalry. No, it's it's not, but that's an attempt then to insinuate oneself into the favor of a rival social grouping. Yeah. Which of course is one of the other ways that whistleblowing. And you could actually say, couldn't you, that whistleblowing is a kind of form dubbing, of, yeah, of course. virtuous snitching. It is. And governments don't like it when people do it to them. <laughs> no, exactly right. That, that's, the, that, that's where things get sort of very, very un- unusual. So, so can I ask you, do you think – I have no idea how you're going to answer this. Do you think that the prohibition, the categorical prohibition on snitching or daubing, given the fact that it's more often than not an expression of what I've described as a kind of solidarity and vice um, – I'm doing the wrong thing, but I need you to have my back on this. It's, it's what's invoked, for instance, when I say to you, Waleed, don't tell anybody, don't tell Sinead, don't tell our guest, but – and then I kind of bring you into my confidence. Mm, mm. It is a kind of solidarity in a form of vice or in a form of wrongdoing. It's the expression of a hope for – a degree of trust between us, that that trust isn't going to be betrayed. Do you think that the categorical prohibition on daubing or snitching, do you think that's a kind of perverted or demented or slightly corrupted expression of a moral intuition or even a kind of virtuous stance towards one another? Or do you yeah. think it is, it is purely vicious? No, no. I think, I think there is a virtue to it. Um, and how would you how would you flesh out then the nature of that virtue? So maybe let's begin. I, I don't know is the answer. So I'm going to me- okay, meander okay. my way towards a, sure. an answer. No, but it. let's do this together so we can okay, see if we can please. arrive somewhere. Unless you've got an answer that's already good. But maybe if the starting point is solidarity, I think there is an understanding there. A that people deserve to some extent to have their dignity preserved. Mm-hmm. And so that if there were a dobbing that happened at every instance of wrongdoing, then people would eventually just become humiliated hmm. by this constant exposure of their flaws. There's a, a humility involved in understanding that we all have those flaws and such that life would become unlivable in a world of 
constant surveillance and dobbing because no one would be able to pass any test. And so like, how could you possibly go on like that? So, so would, you, would you then include in that description, for instance, there have been incidences over the last year and a half that I can think of quite vividly, yep. where someone, for instance, has taken a private message that was sent on Twitter, a direct message, yep. and then put it publicly as a way of shaming or exposing yeah, 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 yeah. or whatever, a confident. So this or is often who, done righteously, right? Y- yes, y- yes, 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 that, that's which, exactly Which right. takes us to a much more analogous situation to the defiance of public health orders, right? That's right. So let me get, let me get to that. Let me get to that in a second. I, I think because the, the other element of it that I think makes this slightly virtuous is an understanding that while there are rules and norms in place, they cannot take into account every particularity. Mm. And there are times when the particularity of things means that the snitching would be to visit an injustice upon the so-called wrongdoer, because in the full circumstances, what they're doing is actually not that wrong. Hmm. Right? So Sorry, not that wrong or not that harmful? Or like, or possibly of... both, or maybe not okay. even wrong at all. Like okay. it might be, <clears throat> you could imagine a situation where... Um, I don't know, someone needs to skip a meeting for some reason because, I don't know, there, there's some tension going on and it's just they cannot face that meeting at whatever point. Mm. And you know they don't have a quote-unquote valid excuse within the prevailing rules of the workplace or whatever. Say they're not really sick. Yeah, or, or whatever. Even though they've called be. in ill, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to dob on you because I know that to dob on you would actually be to visit an injustice upon you in circumstances where the comprehensive and inflexible application of the rules would become an injustice, right? Mm. So I think there's those sorts of malleable elements to it. So it provides a certain malleability, I guess. Now, that doesn't mean that protecting every crime is always virtuous, right? There are times mm. Mm. where that becomes complicity. So then, and that takes us, I think, to the examples that you're talking about. So I suppose what happens is the calculation changes at the moment where we think the offence or the wrongdoing is so egregious that whatever virtue might be embodied in protecting somebody's secrets um, or making their lives or our mutual lives livable by not being overly policed, that that becomes subordinate to the crime that's being committed. Hmm. Uh, And then I suppose it becomes a question of moral slash political or ethical judgment as to where you want to draw that line. So in the case of someone who shares a private message, I think it would have to be an extremely high bar before I would say that's an acceptable thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, In the case of violating public health orders, um, I think the bar becomes significantly lower depending on the context. So if you're in the middle of an outbreak and it's seriously dangerous... And, what, and you're showing a kind of contemptuous disregard for the situation, then if someone wanted to dob you in at that point, I, I mean, I probably wouldn't do that because it's just, I don't know, it's a hard thing. For, I can't imagine myself doing that, but I would find it harder to take issue with someone who did. Interesting. Does this raise then, I love this. I love it when you meander your way towards an answer. It's, it's but, always, well, it's always I instructive. I don't know if it was useful. Like, do you, you might have had a better answer up front. Well, well can, I, can I then raise this? Sure. It seems to me that what's at issue here is what we might call the teleology of Dobby. Yes. In other words, what is it exactly that you are trying to achieve? So let's just give a slightly different, but I think extremely instructive kind of scene or vignette. Let's just say 
that a dear friend of mine revealed to me, either wittingly or not, that he had been having an affair. Yeah. Would it be right for me, given the fact that I'm a friend of the couple, that I've known the couple, I love them both, would it be right of me to then somehow go to, directly to the wife and say, this is something you ought to know? I think there's no blanket answer to that. I think that's right, but I think this... So, yes, I'm not asking for a general advice. The point is, what would be... Um, if, if I were to go straight to the authority in this situation, which, is, which, which would be my friend's wife, um, uh, in the, that's the vertical leap, uh, I, would be, I would be ruining any chance of there being something like restitution in that relationship. I suspect I would also be ruining any chance of an ongoing relationship with my friend. It would be something which, strictly speaking, I think, would be right insofar as I believe that promises, especially promises of that kind, are are sacred and very, very important, and uh, breaking those promises are devastating and are morally culpable. Given all those things, I think in many respects I would be morally justified in doing it. But doing so would also shatter multiple relationships on multiple relational fronts. So you might be doing more harm by doing it. So in fact, I might be doing more harm than good. I guess if the point of Dobbing is to try to bring about a degree of rectitude, in other words, to try to encourage forms of right behavior and to try to minimize or stamp out or dissuade persons from various forms of wrong behavior, then I think what needs to be what needs to be thought about is what's the best way, in fact, of doing that? It may well not be that going straight to the authority, that making that vertical leap is the most productive thing to do. In fact, it may well be that dobbing that person in uh, inculcates in them such a sense of injury, either disproportionate humiliation or such a sense of resentment uh, at both the horizontal relationship that's been broken and then the heavy-handed response on the part of the vertical authority uh, that it actually makes the behavior worse rather than better. So Mm -hmm. I guess it seems to me that Dobbing can in fact be a form both of moral cowardice and of moral bravery or of relational bravery, I I should say, Um, by opting out of the possibilities and the inherent risks that go along with what might be called moral confrontation. In other words, in this analogy, bringing my friend to the side and saying, I I can't believe you've done this. This is why I think trying to kind of, you know, keep my gorge at bay. This is why I think this is immensely damaging to you and to her and to your family and to whatever else. Um, Rather than risking moral confrontation where I try to, what this wonderful philosopher Stanley Cavell calls the conditions of one soul holding another soul to account, uh, you opt out of an inherently risking moral encounter and you go straight to the law, the authority, as a way of trying to imposing, as a way of trying to impose something that's right. So, so that's where I, I think... So you think it's an act of cowardice? I think it can be a form of cowardice unless the act is so egregious or unless, and this I think is the other condition, unless I have so little standing with the other person that any form of intervention on my part would itself be, a, be taken as a kind of affront. 
um, uh, then I think those are the two conditions in which daubing may well do, in fact, more harm than good. Or the relevant authority is best placed to deal with it. Yes, that's true. That's true. So, so would you say, for instance, that's the case if I were living next to somebody and there are multiple indications that there are forms of family or domestic violence going on? Would you say that that would be a first step for moral encounter if I have some standing with that family? Or that's a situation in which dobbing to the police would be the best? Uh, you can't ask me a question like that because I... Again, there's no blanket. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I'd, I'd need to know all the particularities and even then I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But all I will say is I can imagine that it might, in the circumstances like that, be a good idea to go straight to the authorities. Mm. I could be wrong about that imagination. I don't know. So I'm not going to... I want no one to take advice from me on that. No, on, no, on no. That thing. But... But I so but to choose an example that's perhaps less um, fraught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fraught's probably a good word. Um, you know, we, this happens quite often. With I need to get the neighbours to turn the music down because it's three a.m. and I'm trying to sleep. Um, you could be the person who knocks on the door and says, "Turn it down," but you're probably better advised in that circumstance to call the police. Because they will do it. They will preserve your anonymity. In the process, they'll probably preserve the neighbourly relationship, and but the outcome will be achieved. Do you see what I mean? Wow. Yeah, but that's – wow. You and I have diametrically opposed takes on that because wow, it seems to me do? that – You would want to knock well, on the door? Uh, if I have some standing with my neighbours, Absolutely. I mean, I would try to do it far more gently, far less confrontationally. But it seems to me that as soon as you bring the police or some kind of authority into the situation, the options about of who it is that more than likely called the police are fairly limited to two, uh, depending on the density of your housing. Yeah, I think that's um, the, I think that's an assumption. I wouldn't say that that's true. But also, also, I mean, if you were being too loud, yeah, what would you want? Would you want your neighbour to come and knock on the door and say, "I'm a shift worker." I'm really trying to get some. I've got to be up at five o'clock. Would you mind? Again, it's Would going to depend on that? circumstances, right? Okay. If, but if I'm repeatedly having parties at that sort of time, and I mean, I'm be, I'm just being inconsiderate. It's not that yes. there was no, you know, there's some fact to do with my neighbor's life that I hadn't appreciated or something like that. It's like, no, no, come on. I'm having a lend here. I'm I'm really just being inconsiderate. I just need to be pulled into line. Then I think that the police is the right way to do it. Wow, how about that? And in some ways, I think that would be a better that would be a better social outcome, right? Because then I get the knock on the door, I get the message. They're not going to throw me in prison, right? It's not like um, like I think if they were going to throw me in prison, I think it's a very different calculation, right? No, no, but but then it's can you believe they called the police on me? I think you're you're, you're minimizing the humiliation that's involved, the sense of effrontery that's involved at having the police arrive at one's door. Uh, yeah, I think we just disagree on that. Okay. I think that sort of thing happens so routinely around the neighbourhoods of Australia that I don't think... If I told you a story about the time the police came and told me to turn the music down, you don't think that I'm a low life form. You think, oh, yeah, well, that happens to lots of people. Yeah. 
Maybe we live in different neighbourhoods. I think we do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, I'm being told by Sinead, by the way, that local councils usually have noise complaint handling information on their websites. I mean, I don't know that I'm giving specific advice in relation to that. I was just constructing a scenario. But all I'm saying is I think this is one of those things that's hard to discuss generally. because It really is. Because the particularities, maybe that's actually what we're identifying here is that here you're really talking about what is the best way of negotiating social friction. And that will always depend on the very local particularities of the situation. That's right. But along with that are what are the best ways of achieving what you might describe as socially beneficial or even morally productive outcomes. Yeah. And it, 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 yes, yes. It may well be that either the vertical or the horizontal are detrimental to those outcomes. So does that complexity vanish? Does it get flattened out in a situation like a pandemic? That's what I wonder. Yeah, Mm. interesting. Well, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. How many guests could we get to come on the show and discuss such a highfalutin topic? The police officers, <laughs> prison <laughs> guards, officers, right. <laughs> without, prisoners. Without sort of, well, yes. How many constructive guests <laughs> could we get to go on? Um, uh, Cressida Gorkroger is a senior public policy researcher at Where To Research in Melbourne. She was formerly a uh, lecturer in philosophy and ethics at Oxford University. We've had her on the show before. Cressida, it's wonderful to have you back on the minefield. Hi, thanks so much. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, So it's actually, it's an article that you wrote in the Journal of Moral Philosophy and a piece that you wrote for ABC Religion and Ethics that kind of got Walid and I bubbling on this particular topic. Let's just begin with what Walid ended with before we reset the show. Uh, You've heard us try to kind of feel our way through some of the moral complexities surrounding Dobbing. Uh, You may well want to set us right on various points, but before we get to us being set right on various points of moral theory, to what extent does the dynamics, the categorical imperative to snitch or the categorical imperative not to snitch, to what extent do they get redefined under the conditions of a public health emergency when it's not just, say, an annoyance or a private moral failing that's at issue, but rather something that that bears the likelihood of great public harms to a tremendous number of people? Um, well, I think that there are a number of things, uh, as you've raised, that you have to kind of think about when you're thinking about whether it's morally permissible to dob, uh, whether or not you need to exhaust the other options. One of the big things that comes with Uh, obviously a public health imperative like this, is that uh, the fear that you might be dobbing someone in when they haven't actually done anything that wrong is probably removed to a certain extent. So even things that seem like they might be minor in, you know, a normal world, uh, like not wearing a mask or having someone around to your house, we know that, you know, just one person breaching these restrictions can actually lead to widespread devastating consequences. Um, so in that sense, that's something that you maybe need to worry about a little bit less, that people might feel like their actions are not that risky, but, you know, statistically, they might still be um, quite risky. And there's another thing that also comes in with these 
you know, public health concerns, which is uh, you mentioned balancing whether or not we should confront people versus whether or not we should kind of snitch behind their back. And obviously, uh, emotions are really heightened in this particular context. And there are other risks, like risks of potentially catching this disease. So you've got to factor that in as well when you're thinking about whether or not, you know, let's say your neighbor, you always see them not wearing a mask or have people around to their house. Are there actions, the kinds of actions which mean they may be more likely to also not follow other requirements? Maybe they're more likely to catch an illness that you might uh, get if you're interacting with them. Or maybe they're more likely to be the kind of person who's really angered by these kinds of rules and so may take things out aggressively on you if you raise something that you think is reasonable. So I think that there are a range of reasons why you might feel a little bit more comfortable in this case, even if you're a little bit ethically conflicted, um, dobbing because of uh, the kind of public health emergency nature of what you're talking about. It raises also the, the question of likelihood of repetition, right? So if I, if mm -hmm. I see someone's got someone over for their birthday, I might say, look, it's already happened. I can't undo it. And it's not going to happen next week because they don't have another birthday next week, right? And so I guess you're always making these sorts of calculations. But the, the other dimension of this that I think is interesting is if this happens enough, and incidentally, we know this happened during the Depression, don't we? Actually, it suddenly just occurred to me. Mm, this happened during the true. Depression. There's a fantastic history of the Depression in the suburb of Richmond in Melbourne, actually, which came out of some academic research that found, you know, people were dobbing each other in if they were violating, you know, it might have been the Russians' rules or whatever it might be. So that's a sort of similar thing where there's a collective harm potentially being done. So we have this human instinct where we just have this feeling within our gut that something must be done, that there is, it is a time to almost exile someone from the, the bond of solidarity that prevents dobbing. But if you do that enough, if that becomes a norm, then to what extent, Cressida, do you end up, uh, I guess, eroding the social bonds and the social solidarities that are actually necessary in order to navigate your way through a crisis. Because if everyone starts to become everyone else's police officer, I can imagine you reach a point where the whole public concern, the whole collective effort just falls apart. Yeah, it's, it is really tricky. And one of the things that makes it harder is when you feel like people are looking at what you're doing all the time, you are going to feel anxious or uncertain, potentially, even if you're not doing anything wrong. So what you really hope is that if you have a higher rate of dobbing, say, maybe, um, you know, there was a little bit of the resistance in the community to these rules being brought in, uh, but, you know, we know that they're being enforced at a really high rate, maybe aided by dobbing, then you'd hope to see the kind of prevalence of this kind of behavior go down. So, you know, if everybody's acting in the right way, then there shouldn't be a need for very much dobbing, right? So in one way, you know, dobbing's feeding off the back of bad behavior. But in another way, feeling like you're watched is exactly the kind of thing which makes people feel uneasy. It makes people feel like they don't have privacy. It makes people feel like they can't trust other people. And overall, even if uh, dobbing reduces the rate of bad behavior, it might not be worth it in some contexts to be in a world with, you know, fewer rule violations if everybody is feeling on edge, everybody's feeling like they don't have, a, you know, a wide enough range of 
privacy such that they can make autonomous decisions or, you know, relax or know that they can have proper relationships with other people. I think that's really interesting. And what it actually flags, I think, Cressida, I'm not sure if you had this in mind, but for John Stuart Mill, the nightmare scenario for almost any society is for citizens to be locked together in a condition of what he called mutual intimidation, where whether it be through public opinion or through for various forms of civic policing, we hold one another in a state of, of horizontal surveillance. Um, I think that's what that actually violates in so many respects is what we might describe as the reformative or even educative dimension of really any healthy society where members of that society are gradually brought into conditions of greater social, moral, relational health, where we take one another, one another's needs, uh, one another's uh, injustices or likelihoods of harm seriously, and we make certain sacrifices or accommodations as a result. And I, I guess it just strikes me that one of the things that maybe we're, we're leaving out in this dichotomy between either confronting or dobbing, is that if, if what we have in mind is this reformative dimension when we come across a sort of wrong that really does need to be addressed, I'm, I'm, I don't think that all wrongs do need to be addressed, but the sort of wrong that probably does, there, there can be forms of moral encounter that display extraordinary tact that bring the slightest degree of let's call it social expectation to bear. Okay, this really isn't the right thing to do. And there's a very simple way for you to honor your social bond without really being confrontational. So for instance, if someone is on a train and they're not wearing a mask and you have a disposable mask in your backpack, oh, it looks like you left yours at home. Here, have this one. Now, it may well be that this person is stubbornly refusing but that's a kind of tactful way of saying this is noticed. It's not good for all of us. It's probably better for you to do something else. So I, I guess I'm just wondering, there are forms of moral tact in encounter, in trying to bring someone to a better point in their form of behavior, especially when the, when the consequences are likely uh, severe, uh, than simply confronting or simply turning someone in. I mean, but I think you're right, and I love the the example of the mask on the train. But I think sometimes the tactful thing to do will potentially be uh, to bring in an outside authority if you can trust that that authority is going to be tactful. So one of the things that we saw was a couple of weeks ago, um, the South Australian Premier, Stephen Marshall, was telling people not to be dobbers about people who don't wear face masks. And one of the reasons he gave was, you know, there are people out there who have legitimate reasons, medical reasons, for example, for not being able to wear a mask. And um, you don't know whether or not they have these reasons, so you shouldn't be calling the police on them, which sounds reasonable but if it's something that you're concerned about, you might think, well, maybe the other option would be for me to, uh, you know, tactfully bring it up with them or approach them. And I can imagine as somebody who, you know, if I was somebody who were unable to wear a mask, I might feel uh, defensive or targeted or humiliated uh, when people on the street come and, you know, make a comment or give me the eye, uh, where if I just saw police walking around, you know, having a little chat with anyone who wasn't wearing a mask, I would be very easily able to you know, explain my situation and feel like I was dealing with the right people. 
um, rather than dealing with kind of members of the public. And that's going to depend on, you know, who I am, what kinds of things make me feel defensive, what my experience with the police has been previously as well. You know, if I'm maybe a member of a group that is uh, more likely to be targeted by the police or has, um, you know, a historic or a current um, kind of over enforcement by the police, then that might change the kind of characteristics as well. But having a middle party or having somebody who can uh, take some of the emotion out of it, particularly if they're able to be trusted, to be compassionate, to be fair, to be reasonable, um, can often be a really good way of being tactful where people don't feel like it's just about, I mean, you know, police also don't need to tell you that the reason that they're raising something is because they were told by somebody else. So it, while leading your example, and I also have been somebody who has had um, neighbours comment on noise, which I didn't realise uh, was so bothersome, but never had the police uh, called on me yet, hopefully. But, uh, you know, in scenarios where music is really loud, that is the kind of thing that an authority might be able to hear if they happen to be in the area anyway, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so there it might be part of their requirement in terms of tact to also not say, well, your neighbour dobbed you in, but just, you know, we can hear this loud noise. Oh, yeah, I think they don't do that. Neighbors. Yeah, I, th I think they just go and say, can you please turn it down? I don't think they say we've got complaints, which is why you go to them, right? Mm. Yeah, so I think, you know, in terms of tact, it's whether or not you're going to be successfully tactful is partly dependent on the person who is being targeted, the person who's potentially violating the rules. But what counts as tactful might be different depending on the resources that you have. And a third party might be best equipped to have those resources in many of these cases. But also it will depend on the atmospherics, right? So as we go deeper and deeper into our COVID experience, it also seems our fuses are getting shorter and shorter. And so to take Scott's example, I can easily imagine how that scenario, even as tactfully handled as Scott has outlined, could become combustible really quickly. Yes, it's true. It's true. So you're taking a really big risk at that point. And then the other calculation of it, which I know is not the right way to think about an epidemic or a pandemic and a public health emergency, but the chances that that particular person not wearing a mask is going to cause transmission is very low, right? I understand that it only takes one case and um, that if everybody does it, then you definitely will get transmission. And I, like, I understand all that. Um, but the calculation you're making in that specific moment, it's different to a police officer's calculation, which is I need to enforce a plenary rule because that plenary rule, if it is not being adhered to, there'll be chaos. There'll be all kinds of disastrous consequences. But for an individual citizen to do it in respect of another individual citizen, the, the numbers are different, if you know what I mean. Mm. And so the upside and downside calculations of that of that interaction, it seems to me, aren't, aren't terribly straightforward. So I'm not sure. In fact, I think I am relatively sure that I wouldn't do what Scott has suggested there. I don't pretend that's necessarily virtuous, but I don't think it's entirely gutless either. I think there's, mm. there's something else happening in there. I mean, one of the things that um, has kind of come up in your discussion has also been whether there's a bravery either in dobbing or in not dobbing. Um, but I think that you know, it's all right to be scared of other people and their responses often 
when these aren't people who you know um, and you don't necessarily know their circumstances. And I think it's very easy to have the attitude that if somebody ratted you out, say, then, you know, that person is in the wrong. Why didn't they just tell you to your face? As you said, Scott, you know, what would you have preferred? And I'm sure what everyone would prefer is the opportunity to avoid um, having things escalate by, say, having the police involved. But it's easy to have that point of view when you're in a position of power, when you know maybe that you would have reacted reasonably or when you're not the kind of person who's in a vulnerable position. So I know when I was pregnant, uh, often I'd get onto public transport and there'd be somebody sitting in, you know, it might be completely packed and there'd be somebody sitting in the uh, seat reserved for people with pregnancy, disability, movement issues. Um, and I would feel very, very nervous saying anything if it didn't look obviously like they would need that seat because I was incredibly vulnerable. Um, you know, I was physically vulnerable. I was emotionally vulnerable. Whereas other people would sometimes kind of give them a little nudge. And often, you know, people are just using the seat and they're very happy to give it up when, you know, that's brought to their attention. But, you know, when you feel like somebody hasn't brought it up to you or said something to your face, uh, it might be telling you that they're worried that you would have reacted in a scary or retaliative way. And, you know, maybe you would have, right? Or maybe you wouldn't have listened to them or you would have dismissed them as being, you know, silly or overreacting. Or it might just be that you don't know who they are. You don't know, you know, the person who wants to dob, right? They don't know whether or not you're going to be reasonable. And so there's also a compassion that we can extend to other people, which I think we often don't extend because we feel, you know, violated by being told on. But that's to put ourselves in their shoes and think this person felt potentially scared or uncomfortable, not just with the situation of being exposed to, you know, being in a space with me when I'm not wearing a mask, but they were also scared to confront me about it or bring it up to my face. And maybe there are ways in which I can work on that to, uh, you know, make them feel less concerned. Or maybe that's something that society needs to address. Or maybe isn't it great that we live in a society where there are third parties who we can sometimes call on to make it the case that people don't need to take matters into their own hands? Well, I'm just trying to imagine how many people would find their way to that sort of conclusion, Chris, <laughs> situation. Um, if you've just joined us, this is The Minefield. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The voice you just heard belongs to Cressida Galkroger, who's a senior public researcher at Where To Research in Melbourne. This is this is wonderful, Cressida. I mean, this is, can I just say to you both, these are the kinds of shows that I absolutely love because it's taking something that's kind of common. It's sort of in the vernacular and slowly but surely revealing the various moral layers or the things that ought to be taken into account. I just think this is this is wonderful. Can I can I ask you both? Uh, we we are, it seems to me, increasingly witnessing the kind of permeability of the public and the private, uh, things that are done relatively privately or in, a, say, private or even intimate, and by intimate I just mean two people involved, say, interaction between a couple of people that then gets sort of blown up, made public, reported, and so on. There are absolutely occasions, and I think we can all three of us imagine occasions where 
a certain reporting really does need to happen for the well-being of all parties involved, where there is, say, an unequal power dynamic at play, uh, where somebody feels genuinely either threatened or, or uncertain um, or simply just don't know their standing within a particular interaction. But then there are other things where, for instance, there is an exchange between two people. And let's say I said something to Walid and I'm kind of trying to find my way around the right form of words. And I just get it completely wrong. And there's something about the importance of that environment within which I can say something that's wrong. Maybe I didn't fully register the extent to which it was wrong. But should that then be reported or given to a supervisor or sent up the managerial chain, for instance, or say a private message on Twitter that then gets publicized, suddenly that particular part public, part private uh, exchange where there really could have been a moment of tact and learning and reformation uh, and a kind of moral awakening on my part as to why it is that what I said wasn't right or the extent to which what I said was offensive, that then gets kind of destroyed as soon as, as, soon as there is this act of kind of public reckoning or even public shaming. I'm just wondering about the ways in which, you know, even at moments of righteous indignation, when something really has been done wrong and needs to be addressed, what are the, what are the dynamics when that should simply be a matter of encounter between two people, knowing, I suppose, that the telos that's being longed for, the kind of awakening of, don't you realize the valences, the resonances of what you said? Don't you realize how that's inappropriate or offensive? What are the ways, uh, I guess, what are the kind of moral dynamics that are involved for how we should negotiate those types of interactions? Maybe where a certain degree of reformation can be brought to bear, a kind of moral encounter can be brought to bear without it being all made public? So, I mean, I think that there are two things here. One is to do with kind of social media, right? So uh, it is very difficult to morally educate someone on social media, even if you provide a really good argument. The likelihood is, um, you know, that if other people are hearing things, they're going to get many, many arguments and they'll probably get arguments for and against and most of them will be the equivalent of shouting. Um, and I think that there are certain mediums uh, like face-to-face -face or on the phone that are quite good for having conversations that might have a bit more depth to them. Um, I'm not sure if Twitter is one of those mediums, in part because it often does feel public-facing and so you also feel potential for, you know, humiliation where you might end up being defensive. But if it's something like a colleague, um, it's great when people can feel confident enough in, you know, a power dynamic to bring up um, something with a colleague that might help educate them. And particularly where you think, well, you know, maybe they didn't know that what they were saying was wrong or inappropriate. Um, I don't think it should always be, you know, the burden on the person who's feeling uncomfortable to morally educate. Um, and we see this, you know, quite a bit. So you have, you know, women, people feel like women should be the ones to educate other people about whether or not um, speech is sexist or offensive towards them as a woman. Um, and so if they're already experiencing higher levels of sexism in the workplace, they now have this additional burden, which is to, you know, go and educate people. But, you know, that said, 
where you have one-on-one interactions with people, you might also have this great insight into whether or not their behavior is, you know, repeated or a one-off. If they can sense the tone, are they actually going to go and, you know, look for answers to, you know, is this term offensive or should I be, you know, doing this? I think that people do have a bit of a responsibility to educate themselves. It depends on, you know, the scope. But I think if somebody says something very sexually explicit in the workplace, they really should have known better. Or if they use, you know, a well-known racial slur, they really should have known better. It doesn't mean that you post it on social media, but it might mean that you uh, feel like this person, while they might have scope for change, certainly hasn't shown any interest in, you know, educating themselves uh, previously. So, I mean, like Waleed says, and I think a lot of people say this, I'm not sure I would report it, but, you know, I don't always do the morally best thing, so that's not a good gauge <laughs> of whether or not it's the right thing to do. But the, to take the social media examples you use or that you mentioned earlier, Scott, I mean, I think what's different there is that the dobbing, if you like, is not done out of any concern really for the reformation of the individual. It's done to perform one's anger at some moral outrage so as to declare one's own morality and and political position to the world. And then the more generous interpretation would be it's done as a kind of norm-making for everybody else. And if the person at the centre of this who's being embarrassed or humiliated or shamed or whatever responds not by being persuaded in any way, but by doubling down, then who cares? They're, they're irrelevant. They are merely collateral damage in um, in the overarching enterprise. And so it seems to me that that's – is this even in the same conversation as Dobbing, Scott? Mm, it's mm. a different kind of thing. That's the prosecution of politics. Yeah, it's true. Whereas Dobbing, I suppose it's – there's always a politics involved – at some level. But in some ways, what Dobbing is doing is trying to preserve a certain status quo, either at the political level or among your sort of social ties, which means that if it's political at all, it's political in quite a different way. Hmm. So so do you think then, and I, I, I think I maybe 40% agree, because just with your last bit about preserving the status quo, I think that begins to suggest... You're right, a political dimension, but I think a political dimension with far more overlap than maybe you're giving it credit. Um, do do we think then that even if it's a what I described before as a almost solidarity in vice or solidarity in wrongdoing, do we think that the impulse not to dob, do we think that that's the expression, even if it's perverted, expression of something that maybe is kind of morally good about the nature of horizontal bonds? Or is it just a, I need you to cover for me impulse? Is it just the desire to kind of keep oneself safe within rather dark confines where I can do what I like? Can I answer that by doing a little reverse first? So <laughs> the, imp- <laughs> the impulse to Dob, right? The impulse to dob could be uh, driven by the feeling that you need to, you know, protect people or stop a bad thing from happening. Or it could be that you just think, I see a rule being violated and, you know, I'm frustrated because of the principle of the thing and I need to make this right. And I think the first kind of impulse 
is an appropriate impulse to follow um, when you think about, you know, weighing up the other factors about whether or not you should dob. I don't think dobbing just because you feel enraged by the violation of a principle um, is appropriate. And thinking about the impulse not to dob, if the reason that you're not dobbing is just the principle of the thing, we shouldn't dob, we shouldn't tell on other people. Mm. I think that's something you really need to reflect on and analyse. Who is going to get hurt by this kind of principle? What good is it going to do? It may also harm the person who's breaking the rules, right? So uh, it may harm them because it doesn't give them opportunity for moral change or growth. It may harm them because they put themselves or the people they love um, in danger. Or it may harm them because it'll give them a wrong sense of, uh, you know, security or superiority, right? Whereas if the reason that you're not dobbing is because you are expressing compassion or a connection to other people. If you feel like dobbing's wrong because, uh, you know, as uh, your Waleed was saying, uh, you know, living in a world where everybody's watched all the time is incredibly oppressive. And so you feel like it's important to let things slide every now and then if they're not, you know, that big a deal. Then I think that's that does seem like kind of a righteous impulse um, to at least hold back and be moved by your care for other people. But I don't think it's righteous if you're being moved just by, you know, anger or frustration or, you know, the principle that you mustn't tell on other people because there's some kind of categorical imperative against it. Interesting. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Cressida, thank you so much for joining us. I had a lot of fun with this episode too. I think Scott's right. It seems to be the smaller the topic, the better it is. Thank you. Lots of fun. (laughs) (laughs) That is Cressida Galcrojo, who's a senior public policy researcher at Where To Research in Melbourne, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done for the week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.